This is a Fuente podcast. Hey guys, welcome back. Last time we introduced um, Credo Utentelegum, and this is a paper I did in grad school that's talking about a quote from St. Anselm. This is, I believe, in order that I might understand. Uh, we talked about how it seems like kind of a silly quote, but we introduced the idea that potentially the argument from reason might be a modern adaptation of the same kind of thinking. Uh, we talked about this auditorium that had all the worldviews in it and all these different people in it and being able to um, interact with these people and hear their ideas about what the, what, what the truth is. Um, and we talked about how you need to have a worldview that can support the rationality of the human mind, the importance of truth, and our ability to find truth. There's a whole bunch of things you have to presuppose before you can even get to the evidence. Um, so now we turn to the next section, listening to C.S. Lewis. This is C.S. Lewis. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's from his book, The Weight of Glory. Uh, Harper One released one in 1980. That's the edition I have. If you look at page 140, you can see that quote. This quote, this Anselmian statement, was the conclusion to a speech he wrote for the Oxford Socratic Club in 1944. In this speech, entitled, Is Theology Poetry? His language reminds us of Anselm. An astute observer can sense an undercurrent, a teleological nexus that connects both of these statements. These statements, we shall see, are familial. The argument from reason, according to Victor Ruppert, can be traced back to Plato and was espoused by other thinkers such as Augustine and, or Augustine and Descartes. You can see that in the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, page 352. The Stoic philosopher Epicletus saw our ability to reason as the very thing that separated us from animals. That you can see um, in Paul and the Faithfulness of God on page 225. The Stoic philosopher Epictetus believed that there is, quote, a sense in which humans are like the children of Zeus, since... Though we share the physicality of our nature with the animals, we share the reason and intelligence, the logos and gnome, of the gods. Um, but what makes the Anselm-Lewis connection so interesting is the similarity of the two views as seen in Lewis's conclusion. And that's that conclusion, I believe in Christianity, as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but by, because by it I see everything else. In comparing Anselm and Lewis... And looking into the past, it bears keeping in mind some warnings that Lewis has. He gives a few warnings about looking into history. There's two. These two rules are, one, there's no more tiresome error in the history of thought than to try to sort our ancestors onto this or that side of a distinction which was not in their minds at all. That's the first one. So in other words, this rule means don't make St. Anselm speak to conflicts of which he was not a part very well. Let us keep this in mind and come to a conclusion on the mind with humility, at least in regards to what Anselm was intending. The second rule for looking at history works to balance this one out. 
it tells us where to go. Basically, the second rule is this. The second rule is directions on how to treat our predecessors in faith. And it uses an analogy where he equates previous ideas held by Christians in the past. And these ideas potentially have not been nuanced enough. He says that these ideas that haven't been nuanced enough are like nuts that had treasure inside but needed the shell to be removed. This is a direct quote from him. He states, quote, The earliest Christians were not so much like a man who mistakes the shell for the kernel as like a man carrying a nut which he hasn't yet cracked. The moment it is cracked, he knows which part to throw away. Till then, he holds on to the nut. Not because he is a fool, but because he isn't. That's from The Weight of Glory, page 133. His point being... That just because the previous church father said something that needs nuance doesn't mean it should be wholesale discarded. Adding the wisdom of later generations, it's our job as people living in the present. Adding the wisdom of the later generations allows us to crack the shell and find the kernels within ancient wisdom. This is precisely what Lewis's reasoning does with Anselm's Credo Ut Intelligum. The idea of believing in order to understand is very much like believing in Christianity as you believe the sun has risen, not only because you see it, but because by it you see everything else. Now, taking all this together, let's avoid overstating a case and making historical figures say more than they did. But at the same time, let's take what they've said and nuance it and find the nut within the shell. St. Anselm had an intuitive grasp of a deeper truth that Lewis was able to nuance with two main changes. There's two ways that he nuances Anselm. Lewis differed from Anselm in that he did not believe all of biblical truth in order to understand. Too wide. Too much shell. But trim it down and you get a kernel that can withstand the heat of skepticism. Lewis instead held two propositions. One, you have to trust in your mind in order to make truth claims. Two, he replaced Anselm's general end goal of, quote, understand with the more sharply focused goal of excluding worldviews that can't support rationality or reason. Specifically, in this instance, he used this idea against naturalism. Here's a quote from Lewis once again. This quote's from The Weight of Glory, pages 134 to 135. The picture so often painted of Christians huddling together on an ever-narrow strip of on an ever-narrow strip of beach while the incoming tide of, quote, science mounts higher and higher corresponds to nothing in my own experience. That grand myth, which I asked you to admire a few minutes ago, is not for me a hostile novelty breaking in on my traditional beliefs. And I skip ahead. On the contrary, that cosmology, that's the naturalistic interpretation of the cosmos, is what I started from. Deepening distrust and final abandonment of it long preceded my conversion to Christianity. Long before I believed theology to be true, I had already decided that the popular scientific picture was at any rate false. Um, was uh, At any rate was false. One absolutely central inconsistency ruins it. Now, skipping ahead, the whole picture professes to depend on inferences from observed facts. Unless inference is valid, the whole picture disappears. Unless we can be sure that reality in the remotest nebula or the remotest part obeys the thought laws of the human scientist here and now in his laboratory, in other words, unless reason is absolute, and he has reason capitalized, all is in ruins. 
Yet those who ask me to believe this world picture also ask me to believe that reason is simply the unforeseen and unintended byproduct of mindless matter at one stage of its endless and aimless becoming. Here is a flat contradiction. They ask me at the same moment to accent a conclusion and to discredit the only testimony on which that conclusion can be based. The difficulty is to me a fatal one. That's the end of his quote. In this particular work, Lewis is addressing the question, is theology poetry? While he spends most of the essay discussing that issue, he ends his discussion with arguments against naturalism to emphasize that he doesn't reject naturalism simply because theology is beautiful. No, no, says Lewis. Not only does naturalism have its own poetic beauty, but it can't philosophically sustain reason. Science does not prove naturalism. Far from it. Rather, naturalism has no container with which to support the reason that science relies upon. Only a greater reason can give our reason substance. I'm going to go into another quote from him. This is The Weight of Glory, 139 to 140. Granted that reason is prior to matter, that the light of the primal reason illuminates finite minds, I can understand how men should come, by observation and inference, to know a lot about the universe they live in. If, on the other hand, I swallow the scientific cosmology as a whole, and by that he means uh, naturalism, then not only can I not fit in Christianity, but I cannot even fit in science. If minds are wholly dependent on brains, and brains on biochemistry, and biochemistry, in the long run, on the meaningless flux of atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of the wind in the trees. And this is to me the final test. This is how I distinguish dreaming and waking. When I am awake, I can, in some degree, account for and study my dream. The dragon that pursued me last night can be fitted into my waking world. Skipping ahead, the waking world is judged more real because it can thus contain the dreaming world. The dreaming world is judged less real because it cannot contain the waking one. For the same reason, I am certain that, in passing from the scientific points of view to the theological, I have passed from dream to waking. Christian theology can fit in science, art, morality, and the sub-Christian religions. The scientific point of view cannot fit in any of these things, not even science itself. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen not only because I, uh, because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. In summary, then, we see three points from Lewis. One, that reason in a naturalistic world is the unforeseen and unintended byproduct of mindless matter at one stage and its endless and aimless becoming. If this is the case, then two, naturalism, or the scientific point of view, as he calls it in his conclusion, cannot contain many variables present in the world, science, art, morality, and the sub-Christian religions. And then point three, Christian theology can contain all of this data in the same way that being awake is more real than a dream. Because the state of awakeness can contain the dream, and that makes the awakeness more real, so his Christian worldview is more real than the naturalistic one. Because naturalism fails to achieve the structure for reason that his Christian worldview can achieve. All these things together, Lewis can state that by his belief he sees. By your light, we see light. Three years after writing his theology poetry, Lewis released a book entitled Miracles. The 1947 release was highly criticized by Elizabeth Anscombe. He wrote a revised version in 1960, 
and that is the one we will be examining in this next section. This particular book is a philosophical argument for the possibility of miracles. But one of the chapters within this book is a section entitled, quote, The Cardinal Difficulty of Naturalism. Um, here it is we find his argument from reason articulated. This is from Miracles, page 140. All possible knowledge then depends on the validity of reasoning. If the feeling of certainty which we express by words, like must be and therefore and since, is a real perception of how things outside of our own minds really must be, well and good. Beautiful. This certainty is merely a feeling in our own minds and not a genuine insight into realities beyond them. If it merely represents the way our minds happen to work, then we can have no knowledge. Unless human reasoning is valid, no science can be true. For Lewis, a worldview must be able to support reason, and naturalism does not. Naturalism is wholly determined by the movements of atoms and not any rational causation. He argues this point using example, setting up definitions for cause and effect and ground and consequence. Quote, he cried out because it hurt him. That is a cause and effect. And it must have hurt him because he cried out. That's ground and consequent. For ground and consequence reasoning to have any validity, the consequence has to follow the ground. It has to make sense for him to cry out because he is hurt. Restated, if A, then B. This is modus ponens, for anyone who's familiar with logic, sentential logic. Um, if A, then B, means that B has to follow from A. If A isn't connected, uh, if B isn't connected to A, then we are not being logical or truthful. This is the foundation of logical thought, but this is different from cause and effect. A naturalist, by definition, has to reduce any action of the mind down to a cause and effect, not a ground or consequence. If they are thinking something and coming to a conclusion, it is ultimately because of some reducible, non-intelligent chemical reaction that involves nothing but atoms and molecules behaving in deterministic or random ways. So. I'll, break, I'll pause from my paper for a second, break this down really quick and make it clear. You have three things to work with as a naturalist. You have matter slash energy, and then you have natural laws that are deterministic, and you have natural laws that are random. You have to somehow believe that consciousness comes from merely a combination of those three things. Either determinism, randomness, or mindless matter. And that's a problem, right? Because no matter how many dominoes you set in a row, they don't ever become self-conscious. And no matter how random a random number generator is, it doesn't ever become self-conscious. It doesn't matter how many random numbers you put in, or how many deterministic functions you put in. That can't create consciousness. That can't create rationality, so that's a problem. Um, so back to this, uh, uh, but atoms and molecules moving in deterministic random ways. Like a series of dominoes, the act you call thinking is merely the effect of all the causes before it. Lewis takes these two explanations of thought to be irreconcilable. Quote, unfortunately, these two systems are wholly distinct. To be caused is not to be proved. And that's from, let me give you page number. Miracles, page 16. 
To drive home this point, Lewis shows examples of thinking that are the result of cause and effect and how we use this sort of language that naturalists purport to be the origin of our reason. To impeach the credibility of witnesses, you say things like, uh, you say because you are a capitalist, a hypochondriac, a mere man, or only a woman. His point being that we show cause and effect reasoning to disprove the validity of someone's objectivity, epistemology, or other truth-seeking faculties. That is to say, um, you're just saying that because you're a Democrat, or you're just saying that because you're a Republican. That's showing that people can't pay attention to evidence. That's determinism. That's It's showing that this is the same sort of reasoning that we're talking about. It's not ground in consequence. Um, they're not, so if our decisions are merely because of this or that, they aren't actually based on the truth of the matter asserted. They're not based on evidence. Um, that's cause and effect, right? That's um, not because of ground and consequence. Now they only believe in naturalism because irrational deterministic or random physics are taking place. You'll have to see a naturalist try to blur the issue, saying that rationality is beneficial to survival, and therefore it's explainable in evolutionist-slash-naturalist terms. But you have to realize that just because something helps survival doesn't mean that it has now become explainable in naturalistic terms. To prove something is beneficial is not the same as proving that it is possible naturalistically. You can see this mistake made in a debate made by Cosmic Skeptic against Max Baker Hitch. I have the URL attached in my paper, but I can't really say it aloud. Uh, you can look for it, though, online. The problem can be highlighted by imagining something that is obviously violating naturalism. A wizard with a wand that shoots out magic fireballs. If we ask how a wizard can shoot magic fireballs, a naturalist would hardly be let off the hook for saying, oh, yeah, uh, being able to shoot fireballs is beneficial to survival, so of course this accords with naturalism. Yes, that's great, but that's completely irrelevant. The point, just because, you can, just because shooting fireballs helps you survive, that doesn't mean that it's now explainable in terms of deterministic and random natural laws. The point is that the rational mind is just as much stepping out of mere matter and deterministic random rules as a magical fireball would be. We just don't realize it's bizarre because we're so used to being what we are that we just take it for granted. But it's actually very, very strange. It's very strange that we're self-aware. And... um. Lewis goes on to discuss how the act of knowing, given the implications of the previous argument, requires something other than cause and effect. When you're knowing something, you're only actually knowing it if it is something true outside in the world, not merely a part of your subjective experience. This distinction between a mere subjective experience and an actual inference about something true in the world is key. This is a quote from him. If it were totally explicable from other sources, it would cease to be knowledge, just as, to use sensory parallel, the ringing in my ears ceases to be what we mean by hearing if it could be fully explained from causes other than noise in the outer world, such as, say, the tinnitus produced by a bad cold.
And that is from page 18 of Miracles. The next argument that Lewis makes is that reason is not the sort of thing that can evolve. You can evolve reactions to stimuli and eyesight because it's more useful than mere photosensitivity. But reason is not something that can be a product of cause and effect. Or as Lewis puts it, it is not conceivable that at any uh, improvement of responses could ever turn them into acts of insight, or even remotely tend to do so. The, relationship, the relation between response and stimulus is utterly different from that between knowledge and truth known. I have a little footnote here. Um, I personally don't see a conflict between evolution and reason developing. It is a helpful trait for survival. It's the relationship between reason and naturalism that causes a logical contradiction for me. Not necessarily the relationship between evolution and reason that does so. Um, now, there'd have to be some sort of complexity where the... I guess I'm like a dualist, right? So I believe that there's a mind and a brain, and the brain is sort of like a computer that's operated by the mind. Um, and as the brain grows in its abilities, um, the mind that's uh, the mind that is um, doing reason is able to increase its complexity. So maybe it's maybe. Yeah, maybe he has a point there. I don't know. That's something I'd have to think about. Um, I'm I'm slow though to jump on to an argument that sounds like it's something against evolution, based on, uh, like it's seeming impossible for it to happen, um, because those seem like God of the gaps arguments. But this one in particular, he's distinguishing reason from a system where things can only improve by cause and effect. And so in that way, I can see his point. Okay, continue next sentence. Now, uh, no matter how quickly and effectively a response to a stimuli evolved, it has never left the category of cause and effect and entered the realm of ground and consequence. The central claims of Lewis's arguments still hold up today. But Anscombe and others have brought needed nuance to help people to parse where exactly individuals will land as new groups to what panpsychism, dualism, physicalism, etc. develop and form their philosophical camps. Naturalists still have their ways of maintaining their philosophical presuppositions. One is through analogies. And one of those analogies is the computer analogy, that our brains are basically just a computer. Um... And I will look into whether our brains are just a computer next time.